that's the Bible. You know, the, the Bible is written within historical moments and for people. They're not like eyewitnesses writing down what happened. They're storytellers. They're, they're, they're pastors, in a way, preaching sermons to people based on where the congregation is and what they need to hear. Mm-hmm. And the story gets adjusted to do that. And, and we see this quite frequently in the Bible, and it tells us something about just whatever its character is, this is the kind of thing we have to take into account. And how, whatever you think of the Bible is inspired by God and the Bible is revealed by God to writers, however you define those terms, it has to take into account things like what Chronicles does with Manasseh's reign. It, it, it doesn't fit into some standard views of what the Bible should be, but here it is. Hello, my friends, and welcome to the What If Project podcast. This is episode number 30, the big three zero, and uh, today we are dropping another interview, but this is not just any interview, okay? So like a month ago, I got to talk to literally one of my favorite Bible scholars on the planet. He has written a bunch of books. I have them all, um, like a typical nerd. And uh, they have all had a hand in shaping my faith and my thinking about God and faith and spirituality and all that different kind of stuff. Now, before I tell you who it is, uh, I've got to make a confession. I was super nervous. And I wasn't really nervous until I hit the record button and then felt like I was going to throw up. Uh, At one point in the talk, uh, I was having so much trouble focusing um, because on what he was saying. Because he was like talking and talking and talking, and all I could think was like, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God, what am I going to say when he's done talking? I felt like a little kid who is about to meet his favorite baseball player. Like it was definitely a major fanboy moment. So anyways, it was an amazing opportunity. Uh, I got to sit down with the one and only Peter Enns, uh, Pete Enns, to talk about his new book, uh, How the Bible Actually Works and, and he was kind enough to send me an advanced copy, uh, so I got to read it. And uh, let me tell you, it is incredible. It is amazing. It's an easy read. Uh, he's funny. He's very sarcastic. Uh, you will laugh as you read the book. So go get it right now at Amazon. The link is in my uh, in the show notes, so you can go check it out and uh, just do it. And before before I got to tell you too, like before I hit record, uh, I asked Pete for some advice. Now Pete has been podcasting for a while over at the Bible uh, for normal people. And so I asked him, you know, for some tips. Like, hey, I'm just starting out. I've only done five interviews. Um, I'm 30 episodes in. Uh, Like, what do you got for me? And he gave me a gem. And, And other people have said this before, but just coming from him was really helpful for me. He said, just be yourself. And so I went back and I listened to the episode. I'm in light of that advice, knowing that I was having a major fanboy moment. And it just made me feel better because I was being myself. Uh, I am being myself right now. And there's no shame in that, right? I loved uh, the talk with him. I loved chatting with him. And I'm sure that you will um, enjoy it as well. Special music today is uh, from Before Jane. And you can look them up on Twitter, uh, Spotify, Apple Music, all those places. 
Uh, the links will be in the show notes, so go find them, like them, follow them, share their music. Uh, before Jane is headed up by a super, super uh, talented guy who has an amazing, just heart of gold, a really good friend of mine, so go listen to him and support his music after you listen, of course, uh, to this episode. Don't leave the episode yet. Uh, so without further blabbering from me, uh, ladies and gentlemen, let's roll the tape. Here is Mr. Peter Ends. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the What If Project podcast. Uh, today, we have an amazing guest who's joining us, and his name is Pete Enns. But he couldn't make it, so Pete Enns is here with us instead. That's right. Pete Enns took my dog yeah. out of the park. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Well, Pete is one of my uh, favorite Bible scholars because uh, he talks about stuff that's generally pretty far over my head, but in ways I can pretty much understand and grasp. And uh, as you just heard, he has a sarcastic sense of humor like myself and you're also a yankee fan pete i am i know that's fantastic absolutely and uh his books and teachings have made a pretty big impact on my faith journey and um a lot of what i share on here at the what if project podcast so basically if you're listening to this and you hate the podcast it's probably pete's fault (laughs) (laughs) so i'll take it there you go so pete welcome to the podcast it's good to have you along today thanks man thanks i appreciate it absolutely so, Pete, I first came across your work at school, um, and this is how much of a nerd I am. I was thinking about this today. Uh, I graduated from seminary in 2008, and by 2015, I missed school so much that I actually contacted the dean of my seminary and asked him if, since I was an alumni, if I could audit a class online for free. Ooh. And he, he was like, hmm, nobody ever asked to audit an online class, so why not? So I signed wow. up for this class, uh, Background and Context of the Old Testament. And typical nerd fashion, I went out, you know, bought all the books, the highlighters, the notebooks, and got to the end of the class and had to write a 25-page paper on an Old Testament topic and then take a stance on it. So Ooh. I decided to go with the topic. You got to take a stand, man. You right, got to take, take a stand. So I go with Adam and Eve and talk about how it's not a literal story, which definitely lit up my Facebook page a little bit. And uh, <laughs> one of the sources that my professor pointed me towards was your book, The Evolution of Adam. Oh. And so I picked it up. Uh, skimmed it, and uh, I've been a Pete Enns junkie ever since. Well, I appreciate that. Absolutely. So for people that don't stalk you online, though, like I do, can you fill us in a little bit about who you are, uh, a little bit about yourself, what you do, what makes you tick, all that good stuff? Sure. Yeah, well, uh, yeah, I I teach, let's start backwards here. I teach in the theology department at Eastern University, which Mm -hmm. is outside of Philadelphia in Pennsylvania. And if you know the name, Tony Campolo, which a lot of people do, yeah. then you know something about Eastern. So, and I've been here for about seven or eight years now yeah. teaching. And um, I taught seminary for many years before that. And so, yeah, I just, I got into all this stuff because I just wanted to explore my faith more. And that's what led me to seminary. And that's what led me to graduate school. Hmm. And so I just, you know, I write about stuff like that. I blog and have podcasts and all that. And I'm just really interested in, you know, I, I have two questions that drive what I do. What is the Bible and what do we do with it? Mm. And those are not easy questions to answer. And those are answers, uh, those are questions that occupy my thinking, hopefully not preoccupy, you know, but in a healthy way, I just, I think about this stuff a lot. And like, why should we bother with this book? 
and mm. what's so great about it and what isn't so great about it and just be honest and and figure that God can handle that mm. you know so so yeah that's sort of what I do and and um I've been doing this in one way or another for I guess almost 30 years now so wow long time I'm not dead yet no one's killed me so it's <laughs> a pretty good gig they've thrown some stones at you though that's all right they that's missed <laughs> I, I duck and they miss. It just doesn't matter. You know? Hey. You know, when you write about God or the Bible or Jesus or anything, somebody's not going to like what you say. Mm. That's just the way it is, right? So just, I mean, you don't want to just be that person who everybody hates and is always sort of abrasive, but you can't avoid disagreement. And you just have to sort of maybe learn from it if possible or just keep going and you know, we're all trying to figure this out somehow. Yeah, that's very true. Do you find as a professor, just out of curiosity, do you find in your, I should say, encounter in your classes, um, students that come from very uh, like traditional backgrounds who might struggle to see things in a different way? Oh, yeah, definitely. And I think there are a lot of students at Eastern who have been raised in very traditional ways about thinking about the Bible and their faith. And many of them, it's like it's not working, mm. but they don't know why. And for others, it is sort of working. And so they're challenged differently in classes. But, you know, I, I think I can speak for all of us in the department. We're not like after, hey, students, change your dumb minds now kind of thing. It's, <laughs> sure. more, it's more like let's enter into an adult conversation about the Bible that people are having and that have been having. I mean, it's an academic setting. It's a college. So you have to talk about yeah how the world out there talks about this stuff. And, and you know, I try to be very affirming of where students are spiritually and confirming that while also challenging them that there's a big world out there and people have been thinking about this for a long time. And some of these solutions that you might not think are worth much at this moment, they might wind up being very important to you at some future point in time. I just want you to know what they are. Yeah. I'm not trying to make you into me or, or something like that. Hmm. It's just, this is, you know, this, we're, we're learning to be in a conversation about what the Bible is. And joining in a conversation that's been going on for a long time. A very long time. That's right. Yeah. yeah. Hmm. So your latest book, um, which I have right in front of me, uh, is called How the Bible Actually Works, mm -hmm. which implies that there's a way that it does work and a way that it does not work. <laughs> it's a very humble title, don't you think? It's right. <laughs> like hey man, I said, how the Bible actually works. Just get out of my way. Like, like I said, a sarcastic man, just like myself. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I like that because, as you know, this is the What If Project. And uh, part of what we do here is explore the question of what if there are ways of understanding the Bible that are maybe different than the ways in which we typically do or the ways that our traditions have, have handed us. And uh, early on in chapter one, you said something that really caught my attention. I think this is a really good place for our conversation to start. Uh, you said, after 30 plus years, nothing has given us, has given me fresh life to my faith more than letting go of the expectation of security or certainty from the Bible and simply paying attention to the Bible and accepting what I see there. Uh, I was mm -hmm. wondering if you could talk maybe a little bit more about that, that freedom, because I think our listeners would agree that it's something that I think we all long for inside because most of us pick up the Bible. We've got this feeling that this thing is supposed to be clear. You know, it's supposed to tell me what to do. And we assume that's how the Bible works, but then we read it and it's not really that clear. Uh, mm -hmm. We come away not knowing what to do. And then I know for myself in the past, I felt like crazy amounts of guilt 
and shame for not being spiritual enough to understand this book that apparently everybody else is getting so much out of. So can you just talk to us a little bit about maybe how you came to find and discover that, that freedom that you talk about? Well, yeah, I mean, it's, I, I can resonate a bit with the idea of shame hmm. and guilt or inadequacy that everyone else is getting it, but you're not. But, you know, that's just the system talking at that hmm. point. And it's not that the Bible is clear. It's just that the system's interpretation of it is clear hmm. and we figured out what it means. And there's no opposition to that that we're going to tolerate. And so you do get shamed in mm. contexts like that. And, and I don't mean to sound overly negative because not all conservative churches, for example, are like that, but, but it's a very common experience that people have. It's like they tell you to read the Bible every day. It's a word of God and do what it says. And then you lo and behold, you figure out like you did that this book's weird. I mean, yeah. it's really, it does strange things mm. and it's, it's not really consistent and it, it does things that, it may not command them, but it still does things that we wouldn't want our children to do, mm. you know, and, and what do you do with that? And once you see that, there's no going back. Mm. And then you realize that you're not the first person to notice this. Yeah. <laughs> and there have been people thinking about this stuff since there, ever since there have been Christians and Jews before that. Mm. So you're entering into this big conversation and, and just, just, I guess, taking a step back from it all, and not focusing on ourselves so much, but looking at this big conversation that's been going on for over 2,000 years. Mm. And it, it is, it's sort of relaxing in a way, because <laughs> it's like, you know, I'm just, I'm just one person here. What, what do I know? And, well, but you have to be certain about this, that, and the other thing. Well, okay, what if you don't? Mm. What, if, what if this big Bible we have is something that we can explore and have a sense of curiosity about, not mm. just always being afraid of. So, and, and I guess different people will process that differently, Glenn. You know, I mean, everyone's different. But, you know, for me, I, I wasn't raised with that level of conservatism that created barriers for looking at the Bible curiously. I just didn't have that. My parents were European mm. and, and Christian, but not like in any sense of an evangelical where like you go to church and you tell people about Jesus, it was just more an undercurrent of our house, hmm. just the reality of God. So I, I didn't grow up with, let's say inerrancy. That wasn't something that I had as a young person. That's something more I picked up in teenage years and then college years and then seminary years. That's something more that I, I became a part of that. And I understand the, the tensions in that sense. Hmm. But, you know, everybody's different and they have to navigate their way as best as they can. And if we assume that God doesn't hate you for doing that, if you just <laughs> think that maybe God's actually rooting for you, it just it changes your outlook on everything. Mm. Yeah, that's, that's good. I love that you said that the system is clear, but the Bible isn't necessarily clear. Right. And I think that I think that's for me, that was a big thing coming from, you know, I, I grew up in a reformed setting. And uh, mm -hmm. pastored a Dutch Reformed church for a little while, which oh. kind of shows that God has a sense of humor. But, uh, <laughs> you know, it just felt like the, the system itself had such a grasp on the Bible. And I thought all growing up that that was normal. I thought that I was supposed to have a grasp on the Bible, um, right. what it means. But then as I started to read the Bible more for myself, like you said, I just was like, this doesn't really make as much sense as everybody says it does. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And if it were that obvious, if it made that much sense, everyone would be 
a part of this denomination or this right. movement or this system. And, and the fact is that there's always been diversity in the church. Mm-hmm. The church has never, ever thought of the same. See, the thing is, even in the New Testament, like, well, when you go back to the beginning, everybody's on the same page. No, just read Galatians or Acts, and you can tell that Paul does not get along with Peter and James. Maybe they did later on, but at one point, even even at the beginning, with such a fundamental question as, what do Gentiles need to do to be children of Abraham? Do they have to do circumcision, dietary laws? And there was a huge disagreement because a lot was at stake. What was at stake was how you follow the Bible because the Bible says those things. Mm. And Paul says, no, Jesus is here. It's a game changer. The Gentiles don't need to do that. And, you know, that's that's me not unsettling that's like oh okay so this is sort of normal to try to work through things and try to discern what god's voice is saying and how to act and live right here and right now that's sort of a normal thing christians do it's it's not staying in the bubble and treating the bible like a field guide to faith or something like that it's just it's just simply not I, i cannot imagine that it's not it's not it's not built for something like that mm, it's good. too messy yeah um let me get to a couple of specifics in the book um in chapter five you talk about something that really made me think and something i, I don't i think you talked about it maybe at wild goose as well i'm not sure but um i never really thought of it quite the way you put it in the book um you talk about how it's impossible to uh, escape or overlook the fact that different books of the bible sometimes tell the same stories about the same people but in very different ways and oftentimes with even contradictory ideas and different outcomes at the end of the story. And you spend a lot of time in the book going through uh, the story of King Manasseh. And right. uh, just to catch up our listeners, if in case they never heard of him, I'm um, in the book of second Kings. Uh, King Manasseh is seen as the most like evil guy in the universe. He's basically responsible for all of the world's problems um, in particular, the exile of Judah into captivity and he's evil. Everything's his fault. But then you go to Second Chronicles and you see something really different about Manasseh. He's still an evil guy, but the writer says that his sins did not lead Judah into captivity, but only him into captivity. And then the rest of Judah, the writer says, was sent into captivity because of the sins of the people. Um, mm-hmm. And then the icing on the cake is that in Chronicles, you also see Manasseh becoming repentant and then being restored back to his kingship and things kind of go happily ever after. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Two books talking about the same guy but in very different ways. So my question is, and I'm sure maybe our listeners might be thinking this too, is like one of the writers, just a bad historian, or maybe they had a bad memory, um, you know, or does the fact that these two stories are crafted in the way that they are, maybe tell us something bigger about the way the Bible is actually working. That's going back to your book. Yeah. Well, certainly I'm on the latter camp, not the former camp, yeah. but you know, the thing is, you know, the book of books of Chronicles, first and second Chronicles, repeat the story more or less of Saul through the exile and afterwards. So basically mm-hmm. the entire period of the monarchy. And it tells it very, very differently. And, but, but the thing is, Chronicles actually is, I mean, scholars who really study this stuff say there's no question that the, the writer of Chronicles has like Samuel and Kings in front of him. Mm. And he's intentionally moving and manipulating words and things like that to tell a different kind of story. And, you know, I just find that fascinating that he's doing that mm. <laughs> in the Bible of all places. But yeah, it's, it's true. You know, it's, it's a different version of the story of Manasseh because 
it's not one is a bad historian or not. It, they're both historians. Mm-hmm. Both of those stories of Manasseh are written by people who are saying something about the past for the benefit of their present moment. And that's a very important thing to understand about biblical historians are not just telling you this is what happened, but there's always like a lesson or a moral of the story, so to speak, that brings it into the present moment. And these stories were written at very different times, so there were different questions people were being asked. And that accounts a lot for why not just the story of this one king Manasseh differs, but everything is different. They have a whole different spin on stuff. And, and the fact that Manasseh in Second Kings does nothing right, mm. and he's the cause of why Judah went into exile. And in Chronicles, he repents of his sins, but not before he's taken captive to Babylon. Now, this is the, this is the weird thing. The Assyrians come which is historically accurate because the Syrians are around when Manasseh is king. But the Syrians come and they simply capture him and bring him to captivity in Babylon. And that really doesn't make any sense. It's a different place. But why would Assyrians take somebody captive to Babylon? And how, like, they just did a raid and just stole him from the, you know, the, I mean, how did that even work? Yeah, right. But, you know, Manasseh is really a story of Judah's exile later on. It's a parable in a sense. You know, Manasseh went in, he was taken captive to Babylon, but while he was there, he repented of his sins and God restored him. Well, that's the story of the Judah, people of Judah, the Judahites, likewise, in Babylonian captivity, and God restores them. So th- this is more a way of bringing the story of Manasseh into the lives of people who have gone through Babylonian captivity. Mm. The, that, that sounds awfully technical and maybe even boring, but that's the Bible. You know, the, the Bible is written within historical moments hmm. and for people. They're not like eyewitnesses writing down what happened. They're storytellers. They're, they're, they're pastors, in a way, preaching sermons to people based on where the congregation is and what they need to hear. Hmm. And the story gets adjusted to do that. And, hmm. and we see this quite frequently in the Bible, and it tells us something about just whatever its character is, this is the kind of thing we have to take into account. And how, whatever you think of the Bible is inspired by God and the Bible is revealed by God to writers, however you define those terms, it has to take into account things like what Chronicles does with Manasseh's reign. Mm. It, it, it doesn't fit into some standard views of what the Bible should be, but here it is. Mm. You said that that's maybe sometimes where the Bible today gets maybe misunderstood and even misused is in the sense that oftentimes it's approached as being this historical document and this is exactly the way things happened. And, you know, then we take that and we make arguments with that and we end up making the Bible do things that it's not maybe meant or even um, built to carry. Yeah. It's it's very stressful to maintain a view of the Bible that looks at it as like modern history. Mm -hmm. Even modern history isn't like objective all biblical, all historical writers, ancient or modern, have perspectives and even agendas mm. that they might even not, not even be aware of. So there's really no such thing as an objective writing of history. Yeah. But then people say, and I can understand this, they will say, yeah, but the Bible is different. This is the Word of God. I thought, okay, let's, let's call it the Word of God, but let's, let's, let's see what it's doing. And here you have different histories. 
And we have to ask ourselves, I think the question of faith isn't, how can I make the Bible stop acting this way? The, the question of faith is, what can I learn about God and the Bible from watching what the Bible's doing? Mm. And that's actually a true, to me, that's a much more respectful and reverent way of looking at the Bible, rather than saying, it's got to act a certain way. Mm. Now, I don't see it acting that way, but by golly, give me a few minutes and I'll get it there. <laughs> sure. But that's, I don't think that's really respectful of the text. I think that's mm. making things up. Yeah. So kind of like the case with Manasseh, the Bible also gives us differing um, views of, of God as well. Um, in chapter 8, I want to read a quote that you have. You said, the Bible does not leave us with one consistent portrait of God, but a collection of ancient and diverse portraits of how various biblical writers understood God for their times. And mm-hmm. I mean, talk about how sometimes God is seen as a king. Other times, you know, it says he's a potter and a shepherd. And you have times where he's like a, you know, he's a warlord and he's solving problems with murder and, and violence. And so mm-hmm. kind of wondering, you know, what are these varying pictures of God show us about the Bible, especially when some of those pictures seem to contradict each other, like God being a shepherd and God being a violent killing machine. Is the Bible telling us that God is both of those things and he can, um, you know, change his mind at any moment? Or again, is something else going on? Is the Bible trying to model something else for us concerning God? Well, I think, I mean, some of those metaphors, you know, I can see God being a shepherd sometimes and a warrior other times. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I don't think that's, in, I don't think you can say those things can't be together because just like people were complex. Sometimes I'm a loving father. Sometimes I'm a jerk teacher. You know, it's like, <laughs> it just all depends on where I am and what's going on. So it's, right. I think it's possible to have those metaphors and they don't, I don't see the tensions as really being there, but I, I see the tensions in other kinds of things in the Bible. Actually, I don't think they're tensions. That's my point. But they, mm-hmm. there are tensions when people think that the Bible has to be a certain way. And the Bible, if it does anything, has got to give us accurate information about what God wants. <laughs> and the thing is that the, the Bible is just, it's, it's more richly textured than that. And, you know, I mean, just a very quick example, if I may, um, in Exodus, mm-hmm. there is a slave law, and the slave law says basically this: Hebrew male slaves can go free in the seventh year if they want to. That option is not open to female Hebrew slaves. They can't. They they can't do that. You move to Deuteronomy, and it's very clear. It's emphatic. Twice it says, male and female Hebrew slaves can go free in the seventh year. Mm-hmm. Now both of those are from God on Mount Sinai, given to Moses according to the biblical tradition. So what, what, what's going on here? Well, they can't be different because God said them. They have to be the same, but they're not. I mean, you can't make male but not female and male and female to say the same thing. They contradict each other. Mm. The question is why, and you know, the answer that most people have fallen on who care about this sort of thing is that, well, this is you know, people's understanding of what God wants and who God is may be changing or growing. And, and then it's not even done there. You go to uh, the book of Leviticus, and there we read, you know, folks, we shouldn't have Hebrew slaves at all. Mm. You're not allowed to keep Hebrew slaves because we were all slaves in Egypt, and you don't treat your fellow men and women, you know, uh, Hebrews that way. Now, you can enslave people from other places. That's sort of, that, that never changes, but you can't have Hebrew slaves. They're more like hired workers, but not slaves. 
Mm. So that's another change, you know, and, and you can almost plot those changes chronologically, like Exodus is earlier, Deuteronomy might be more in the middle, and maybe Leviticus a little bit later in terms of when scholars think these things were written. But you're seeing sort of a move towards humanitarianism in a way. Mm. That, that's, that's a quick way of putting it. I'm not, I'm not totally yeah. satisfied with putting it quite that way, but like, what do you do with those things? Yeah. And a lot of people have thought about that over the ages. Like, what kind of a Bible do we have? And, you know, the people who were compiling this Bible, which probably happened during the exile and afterwards, they knew this. Mm. They can read too, but they, they kept and preserved all these traditions of these ancient Israelites into this book because all these traditions are valuable. And that was the way you honor God. Right. Not by making decisions and saying, well, God would only say one thing. Mm. So, and, and I think they were learning something, not so much about, like, try to cram this into some view of God, but more, like, how, how has the Bible always functioned for people of faith? Has it been that rule book where, there it is, it's in writing, you have to do it, or are we meant to wrestle with it on some level yeah. and say, yeah, Jim, what's going on here? I can see these people rethinking about what's going on with God. Well, do we do that too? Mm. You know, And all these questions come up that invite exploration and curiosity about the Bible and the life of faith and not, not feeling like worried, like I might get this text wrong. Mm. I think the Bible relieves us of that worry completely because of how it acts. Yeah. The other day I was having a, a conversation with somebody on, on Facebook and we were talking about this kind of thing. And I had said something along the lines of, um, you know, the, the Bible in the Bible, God isn't changing, but the way people are understanding God is changing. Mm-hmm. You know, God. How'd that go? Yeah, that didn't go very well at all. <laughs> and the yeah. the response I got, which I wasn't really sure what to say, so I forgot to throw it out to you, is well, at the, if that's true, then you know they said, well, when do you when does God stop? When does your understanding of God stop evolving? You know, if if you're saying that you know the way that people understood God in the Bible is evolving, so that's why God seems to be different in one place and the other. You know, mm-hmm. then then how come you get to keep evolving? You know, does that mean that you can keep evolving the way you understand God, or does at some point does it stop? Well, here's the thing, and this is why I think a little dose of Eastern Orthodoxy is always a good thing, because mm-hmm. the point of all this is to come go ever deeper into the mystery of God. Mm-hmm. And the worry that you know, this person on Facebook has is that, well, at what point is this going to stop and we can finally rest on solid ground, know right. exactly what's going on? You know, what if God is just bigger than that, bigger than our human minds? Mm. And what if to say that God is, in other words, this thing, this is not a bad thing that we're, we keep moving forward because maybe we're getting to know the mystery of God better and better mm. or deeper and deeper. And, and when do you stop evolving? Well, I'm just a person. Mm. I hope never, never right? I mean, is this God of the infinite cosmos can't be simply contained in my little 21st century male brain? Yeah. I hope not. I mean, if if I can control this creator in my head, this isn't worth it. Mm. Uh, I'd better be evolved. I'd better be fully inadequate to understand the deep mysteries of God. And yet, you know, if you believe the presence of God is with you, you can still be that to the world around you. Mm. And even if you don't know the answer to all these questions, because you don't, yeah. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> for every answer, there is an equal or opposite answer that you can sort of 
throughout there too. And, and, you know, being a biblical scholar, I just, I live with this all the time, that there's always somebody smarter. Mm. These things differently. And it, this conversation keeps going and, you know, not to go on and on, but this is why there's something about Judaism that's helpful as you know, Glenn, because there's a debate mentality there where you, you, it's not about arriving at the end and the discussion ends. It's about keeping the discussion going. Mm. That's how you honor God in the text. And Christians sometimes lose that. It's like, it's about getting that right answer. Right. And people who disagree, well, you just break off from them and start a new denomination or a new <laughs> school. And that's why you have 30,000 Protestant denominations, right? <laughs> however many there are, you know? Right. But rather than that, it's more like maybe we're just all participating in this mystery of life and of the universe or the multiverse, whatever it is we're living in, mm-hmm. you know, maybe that's what this is about. And maybe we can be thankful and curious sometimes and not just worry that I used to know everything and be confident of that. Now it's slipping away. Woe is me. Well, you're growing up, if I can put it that way. That's what's happening. Yeah. You're realizing you're maturing as, and there's, we're always maturing. I'm maturing. I'm not mature. I'm maturing. And, everybody is and that's very freeing to me and maybe i'm just getting old and tired but <laughs> you know, i didn't think this way when i was 20 or 25 or 30 but the past 10 years i'm 58 the past 10 years it's like wait a minute sure and I, I think that how yeah. dare i think i know all this stuff you know yeah right but i think i think that's something to say because i mean you think about like even living things you know when things stop growing and things stop evolving then things die right that's just the way it is. So I think, you know, the same ought to be, if we look at our faith through that lens, I think that's a really powerful thing. And it's more of an assumption to say, well, no, the purpose of faith is not to change. Mm-hmm. It's you know, the, the, the faith once for all delivered from the, from the, to the saints or from the saints, however the passage goes. But the fact that, that the point of this is that it always stays the same. Mm-hmm. And the thing is that it doesn't, and even within the Old Testament, it doesn't. And the New Testament is a much shorter period of time, but even there you see movements and emphases and disagreements. And by the time, you know, you get to like the fourth century, for example, you know, I'm Episcopalian sort of, and, and <laughs> we have creeds and, and we recite them, which I think is great. And one of them, the Nicene Creed, you know, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father. I mean, that's... That's not biblical language. Those are not biblical concepts. Those are, that, those are Gentile ways of grasping this Jewish faith within the language of Greco-Roman philosophy. I, I think Paul honestly would look, and Jesus would look at some of that stuff and say, what do you, I don't even understand what you're saying. <laughs> you know, what, what is, but the thing is that that's okay because they're also they're owning their faith in their own moment in their own time. See, the the faith itself has is evolved the right way word. I don't think I don't think evolved is the right word for that. I think it's mm. more it's it's flexible mm. <laughs> enough to bent in a different direction, right? And maybe that works personally too. Maybe I think something today about God or a text of the Bible that I would have thought was disastrous twenty or thirty years ago. Mm. But now I realize, actually, it's not. It's really good. And sometimes, you know, it's hard to be um, – I, I want to make sure I say this right because I don't mean this in any way, like in a condescending way. But, you know, sometimes you're being critiqued by people who are in some sense in their 20s or teens, sure. even if they're in their 50s or 60s or 70s. They're, that 
that maturation of sitting with this stuff and being willing to change and be flexible and see where is God taking me mm. instead of saying, I've got this all nailed down. You know, it's, it's, you can't really have a conversation at that point. Mm. And when the assumption is the point of all this is to stay solid and never move. Yeah. Then that just, you know, you can't like have a conversation on Facebook that way. Right. That's for sure. Yeah. yeah. And that's that, that conversation eventually got to that point. And I said to the person, I was like, we're just going to keep going back and forth because we're looking at the Bible in two completely different ways. Like you're seeing it as this, like a lawyer, you know, who has a bunch of books in their office and you're building this case. And I understand where you're getting it from, but I'm seeing the Bible as this collection of writings and letters and things right. that, you know, were written to a context that you and I are not involved in. So we have right. to do some digging and some work to try to figure out what does that mean for us today? And one reason I wrote how the Bible actually works is exactly for that reason to say, listen, we can go round and round on this and talk about what we think the Bible is doing. But what I'm trying to do is, is demonstrate, maybe even tediously for some, but to, to demonstrate from the Bible itself saying, okay, why does the Bible look like this? Mm. I don't think it works this way. I think it works another way. I think it's doing something that's actually of, like immeasurable spiritual benefit, which yeah. is modeling for us our own need to be thinking about what is God like right now for mm. me, for the world around us. And, and, and ironically, the Bible doesn't work as that book that explains all that to you. Like the Bible doesn't tell you how to vote. Mm. Some people think it does, but it doesn't. Right. It doesn't tell you anything like that. Right. You got to figure it out, mm. but you figure it out in conversation with your tradition in conversation with scripture in conversation with, you know, the world as you see it. And that's, that's like wisdom at that point. It's not mm -hmm. just looking for an index in the back of a book to find the right verse and do that. Yeah. Um, that's good. And you, you say throughout the course of the book that, you know, the Bible or there being, it's not a rule book, it's a book of wisdom. And um, one of the kind of places you spent a lot of time in is in the book of Proverbs. I know you've, done some podcasts too, um, specifically about um, Proverbs. And uh, one of the verses you quote is chapter 26, verses four and, and five. Mm -hmm. And I never really looked at those verses, I don't think, like side by side, the way that you um, put them in the book. But, you know, verse four says, do not answer fools according to their folly. And then verse five says, answer fools according to their folly. Yeah. And then you kind of go into that a little bit. And you say something that I thought was interesting. You said, um, reading the situation, not simply the Bible, is what wisdom is all about. Um, mm. If you just read those two verses, you come away yeah. going, I don't know what to do because it's two yeah. opposites. But if you read, what do I do? Right. If you read those verses through the lens of your situation, um, it looks a little bit different. So question I had is, you know, what happens when we, when we don't read the situation, but we just read the Bible? Does that cause, you think, a, a number of problems for people? Well, yeah, that's a good question. I think what it can do is it can give the impression to others or to yourself that, again, the Bible is this book of rules to be mm -hmm. followed. And for others, I mean, that can be very oppressive if you put that on other people. You're not really honoring their experience. Sure. And people who've gone through difficult times and tragedies, you know, or deaths, untimely deaths and things like that. And and you pop a verse in there and just sort of, and they can, it can actually damage people instead yeah. of maybe being wise and not doing that sort of thing. But, mm. 
Yeah, I mean, the, the, the Bible just, it's, that's why the Proverbs 26, 4 and 5 is this great example, because you have, there's no way to not call these two contradictory. Sure. And they're side but the by thing side is that, right there. The thing is that they're not, they're, they're not contradictory in the, in, the, in the true sense, I think, because they're placed there intentionally by the writer. Yeah. Because the writer wants you to think, okay, well, which one do I do? Do I answer or not answer? And the question is that the answer is it depends on the situation you're in. Sometimes mm -hmm. you speak up, sometimes you don't. Well, how do I know what to do? That's what wisdom is for. You're supposed to gain wisdom. Mm -hmm. And, and wisdom, wisdom is about, like you said, you know, reading the situation. You know, do I answer this person now or not? Is this the right time? Is it, do I have the right relationship with this person? What's going on? What's their history? Right. All these things, you have to come to these conclusions fairly quickly to know, I think I need to speak up, or this is a great time to keep my mouth shut. Mm. That's good. Yeah, I think uh, especially like on, I think you mentioned too in your book about, about Facebook, just the idea of it, you know, somebody comes on Facebook and you know, rips into you about something like we've been talking about and, now, do you answer that person? Do you not answer that person? Do you block that person? You know, like what, what exactly do you do? What do you do? And why yeah, do you do it? And, you're hard. Yeah. and sometimes you're wrong. I mean, sometimes right. you feel, I really should have done the other thing. Sure. But that's what wisdom is about. Wisdom is about learning that sort of stuff. Mm, that's good. You know? um, last question, because we're getting a little bit short on time. Um, but let's just say, I know a lot, like a lot of my listeners I, I talked to you about before we started recording, just a lot of listeners like myself are trying to, think of different ways to read the Bible, just maybe outside of the more traditional ways and just rethinking things in light of the context of our lives and of our world and stuff. And, you know, a lot of people I know grew up being told it was a rule book and therefore kind of grew up hating it. Um, I was talking to somebody a couple of days ago about how, you know, the Bible is used to, to shame them and push them down and things like that. Mm -hmm. Let's just say like people want to pick up the Bible again and they say, no, I want to give this book another shot. I want to, I want to read it again with fresh eyes. I want to open it up and start somewhere. Um, what is your advice for that, that person? Is there a place in the Bible that they should start? Is there maybe a accompanying commentary or something that they can read along with it to help it make a little bit more sense for them? Like what is your, what's your advice for that person? I, yeah, I think first of all, the person asking that question is already on the way, you know, and, mm -hmm. and to look on at the Bible with fresh eyes is really good. I mean, I, you know, whatever course I'm teaching, I will read that corpus of material, those books, like weeks ahead, and I try to make believe I've never seen it before. Mm. And that's actually a very good exercise. But I really do recommend, and I say this a lot to people, that there's nothing like a good study Bible, mm. <laughs> you know, to, to help get notes, to explain difficult concepts and stuff. And, and I would recommend, there's some that I would recommend that I think are not trying to protect the Bible, so to speak. Yeah. But are trying to actually engage things in, in, I think more with more integrity mm. because the Bible is more to be explored and to be curious about than it is like, Oh no, this can't be, this is a horrible thing. Let's, let's paper over this or let's just ignore it entirely. Mm. And in terms of where to, I just, you know, like it's just let your gut tell you where to go. Like, I've never liked Paul. Maybe I should read something <laughs> where I just, I, I want to read the gospel. Like I've never read through Psalms or I just can't keep all these names straight with David and his sons and all these generals and stuff. I just, it's whatever, there's no right place to start or stop. Mm -hmm. And if you have some guidance, like again, with a good study Bible, 
like you can go anywhere almost. I mean, I, I wouldn't always recommend people go right to Genesis because that's some of the most difficult stuff, frankly, in the sure. Bible. And that's where you almost have to go into these stories in Genesis with a different frame of mind where you're not expecting, let's say, science or history in any sense of the word that we think of it. It's, mm-hmm. it's something different happening there. That's good. Well, Pete, thank you so much for uh, coming on here to chat with me. It's been a lot of fun. Um, I really appreciate all your work and just the stuff that you do has been very helpful to me. Thank you, Glenn. Yeah, I appreciate it. It's fun being on. And uh, where, can people, where can people go to find you? I don't want people to find me. <laughs> <laughs> no, just uh, PeteEnds.com, also the Bible for normal people.com and it gets you to the same place. And that's a website. And I, you know, I have all the usual stuff on there and, um, you can join us on our podcast, The Bible for Normal People, and you can get that where you always get podcasts. And, uh, you know, we have this online community through Patreon where we have Slack groups and all sorts of things like that that people mm-hmm. seem to get a lot out of. And it's, it's nice to build a, an online community of people who um, don't always feel like they fit other places. Yeah. So this is space to just be themselves. and. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, so we're trying to grow that. So stuff like that. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you, Pete. And uh, I'll see you in the interwebs. Yep. See you. Bye-bye. Bye. Wow. 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 Uh, Thank you so much for listening to this episode. It was such a great conversation with such a great guy. Um, It was exciting for me to get to talk to Pete. Um, it's fun just to get to talk to guys like him, you know, pick their brains and present to you uh, the findings that I am able to unearth. So, so much fun. But before I let you go, um, I don't want this to sound like a commercial, but it kind of is. So uh, two quick things. Number one, if you find this episode, if you found this helpful, you find the podcast helpful, would you please uh, head over to iTunes, wherever it is that you're listening to this, and just give it like a rating. Ratings and comments uh, somehow in the space force of podcasting. Uh, I don't know what that means, but somewhere out there, somehow ratings and comments help it kind of play in favor of the algorithms so that when people search for church, Bible, spirituality, whatever, uh, the What If Project has a greater chance of crossing their screen. So if you could head over to iTunes, wherever, just give this a rating, leave a comment. That would be awesome. And number two, uh, the What If Project is now on Patreon at patreon.com slash whatifproject. So if you'd like to support uh, what's going on here, go check it out. The link is in the show notes. Uh, money that you give will go towards what I say keeping the lights on here at the project, meaning you know help pay for the hosting of the website, the podcast, all that good stuff. Uh, maybe even help me get a better microphone <laughs> somewhere down the road. But uh, there are four tiers of giving that you can choose from, and three of those tiers uh, offer a reward. And one of the rewards, which is my favorite, is you getting to join what I'm calling the Heretic of the Quarter Club, which, believe me, is some awesome, awesome stuff. So please uh, give a rating on iTunes, wherever you listen to this. Go check out Patreon. Even if you don't uh, you know, give anything, just go check it out. Uh, See what it's all about, and um, I will catch you next week. Have a great one, and talk to you soon. Bye-bye.